Revelation chapter 19, here we go. We're talking, if you've been joining with us, that we're dealing with end times and we've talked about a lot of different prophecies. We looked at the rapture, that's coming up any moment. We looked at then the Bema seat, that's coming any moment. We spent the bulk of our time talking about the tribulation period, the next seven years in human history, somewhat following shortly thereafter, how long it is we don't know, after the rapture, then we have that tribulation period and we focused a lot on that. We kind of wrapped that up and now we're in Revelation 19 to finish up the tribulation is the return of Jesus Christ. We read about it <coughs> in Revelation chapter 19 down in verse 11. I saw heaven open and behold a white horse and him that sat upon him was called faithful and true and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. <coughs> Excuse me. His eyes were as a flame of fire and on his head were many crowns and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. He was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. His name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should smite the nations and he should rule them with a rod of iron. He treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God, and that you may eat the flesh of the kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, and of them that sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both great and bond, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. The beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, with which he delivered them that had received the mark of the beast, and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into a lake of burning, a fire burning with brimstone, and the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceeds out of his mouth. And all the fowls were filled with their flesh. <clears throat> Here we have... <clears throat> a lot of information about that return of Jesus Christ. And so let's kind of put it in perspective. Let's just answer several questions. <clears throat> when does this take place? <clears throat> Excuse me. When does it take place? If we were to chart it, we would remind ourselves where we're at in the chart. You have the beginning, the rapture of Christ, which could, a rapture of the church, which could happen any moment. Then, shortly thereafter, there's going to be the signing of the treaty by Antichrist. When I say shortly thereafter, we don't know if there's weeks months, days, or some year period between the rapture and the signing of the treaty. But when it takes place, that kicks off. And whatever treaty it is, we're not sure, but we're not going to be here anyway. The Antichrist will sign a treaty for seven years with Israel. Then what happens is that begins that period of time, and initially God starts pouring out a period of judgment that's called the first set of judgments, the sealed judgments. They seem to be more worldwide than located in the Middle East. Then at the middle of the tribulation, there's a war in heaven. Satan is cast out of heaven. He comes to earth. He knows his time is short. And this begins the intense persecution that Satan will try to uh, usurp the plan, the prophecies of God. Antichrist at this moment becomes the dominant world figure. This is when uh, through the help of the false prophet they'll institute the mark of the beast, things of that sort. And so at the last three and a half years, Antichrist will have his worldwide rule. During that time period, God's response is seven judgments 
uh, that are called the trumpet judgments and seven judgments that are called the vile judgments. And they are then again against the empire of Antichrist. They focus worldwide as well as particularly upon the, uh, upon the dominion of Antichrist, especially in the Middle East. Then there's going to be the destruction of Babylon. There's going to be Armageddon. These all seem to wrap up together towards the very end of the tribulation. And then it wraps up. It ends with the second coming of Jesus Christ who comes and, and finalizes the tribulation. If we were to list it all out, we could do it this way. But the passages that talk in particular about the coming of Christ, though it's referenced many times, these particular passages are the ones that give more explanation. The Revelation 19 Zechariah passage, they give us more details. They give us a lot of the information about where it happens, when it happens, what's going on at that moment. So taking that information, let's look at Revelation 19, what we just read right now. What he focuses on as he's telling about the return of Jesus Christ, he does a lot of information about his appearance. That has to be important if he's giving us all this detail about who this Jesus is and what he looks like. And so he gives him names, he gives appearances, he gives activities to highlight some thoughts about the coming of Jesus Christ. The appearances right away, we know he's riding on a white horse, which back in ancient culture, what we're talking about is the conquerors would usually do that white horse, the victors. Uh, the impression of coming on this white horse is the idea of purity, victorious, um, celebration of a, of a certain individual, that he stands out different than the others. His name is called in here that's written on his, his garments, faithful and true, which is an interesting uh, formula of terms that are used at this time. At the time, and I think this is important to note, at the time the world has been under the rule of Antichrist and Satan for three and a half years, dominated by them. If you remember, those characters are identified as being people of deceitfulness, people who are deceiving the whole world. And those are their major characteristics. Now here comes the counter person. Here comes Christ, who is just totally opposite. He's faithful, he's true, he holds his words and keeps them. In Jewish literature, the second Maccabees talks about it using this phrase. It's the idea that when he uses in second Maccabees, the idea of that faithful and true, he uses it in reference to God coming and carrying out his judgments. So if we're taking ancient liter literature and looking at how they use that term in association with God carrying out his judgments, that fits this passage really well, that the Jews of that time period when John's writing would understand that is a phrase that would, that would typify, that would highlight the coming judgments of God Almighty through this one person, Jesus Christ, who's speaking truthful, who's carrying things out, and who's bringing the judgment. The other things that it stresses to us is just the reliability of Christ, the honesty is dependable, that whole idea that Jesus is different than what they've been experiencing for the last three and a half years. Another thing that's highlighted here is he's coming to judge and make war, and uh, so we have the idea that he is coming, he's going to be fair, he's going to oppose all the evil that has been carrying out, and uh, we use a phrase at times when you talk ethics of a just war. And uh, the concept in Scripture of just war being, okay, what justifies this type of action? Many people criticize God Almighty in the, book of, uh, in the Old Testament books because they say that he came and he's wiping out the Canaanites. And a lot of people will look who are critical of the Scriptures and of how God acted, and they will say that God was immoral by wiping out entire societies, a genocide of the Canaanites. 
And yet, if we understand from an ethical point of view, it was a just war in that the, the corruption and the evil and the decadence was so great that from God's perspective in coming in, he either cleansed the land or there would be the influence of that evil would come upon the Jewish people, which we understand historically exactly happened. That because they didn't purge those individuals, as a result, they were tainted by it. That's what we mean by just war. Is there something that justifies the action that is being taken? And from God's perspective, this is going to be a just war when he comes back because of the decadence, the evil, and the opposition that he is getting to his establishing his own control. The emphasis is upon how he looks. His eyes like a flame of fire. If you were just, if you described and took that word and say, okay, they use this to describe somebody that his eyes were as a flame of fire. What would come to your mind? What, what is that depicting about the individual? Piercing? Okay. I think that's the main concept, is that idea that he is coming in that sense of intensity, knowing everything that is happening, uh, looking and seeing and removing. And so there's no, there's no hiding from Christ. There's no... Um, pretending there's no um, idea of being able to deceive him. He comes without deception. You can't deceive him either. And so there's that idea, that flaming fire of piercing, intensity, judgment. And all of this is wrapped up in, again, describing to individuals, here's the way Christ will look. Here's when he comes back. He gives the idea that there's many crowns or diadems upon his head. What stands out here? Let me, let, me, let me try to see if I uh, think it through uh, in this sense. How many crowns do people normally wear? Royalty. One, typically, the crown for whatever their kingdom is. Why do you think he brings it up that there's many crowns upon his head? Everything, yeah. The emphasis seems to be that his rule goes to all the different nations and expands to all of them the rightful ruler of, of most of them. He has a name that no man knows. Now this isn't the only time it comes up in Scripture that uh, God has names that aren't full, that aren't known to everybody. He does that elsewhere that he talks about believers are given a name that others don't know, a pet name, um, a name between you and the Lord alone that, are, that is going to be distributed so that you have a unique relationship with God that, just like you as parents, you have certain uh, pet names, sweet names that you might use with your kids or your spouse, and it gives a very unique relationship. And so that seems to be the concept here that we're describing somebody who has a very unique relationship with the Lord or he is um, just above all names. Now the vesture dipped in blood is two possibilities. The vesture dipped in blood is the idea that his own blood has been shed, which we understand. But many, many authorities and many commentators say, well, in this context, it is probably a little bit different because of where it's going. The vesture that's dipped in blood could be his judgment of others that it is an, it is an expression talking about his taking, demanding, uh, carrying out judgment against others. And it's not the, his blood that is bedshed, but the blood that he is shedding in judgment, lives that he is taking because of what they have done. And that comes up several times in prophecy about the, him coming and uh, exercising judgment over people and, if you would, shedding their blood, okay, in the sense that he is demanding from them in retribution. The other thought that comes up is his appearance, again, is the Word of God. As soon as you see that his name is the Word of God, what passage does it take you back to? John chapter 1. 
John chapter 1, right away. The Word of God was with God and was God. And so it emphasizes that idea that we have the same character. And by the way, who wrote John chapter 1? The Apostle John, who's writing Revelation? The Apostle John, same person. So he would right away tie this together. And so he's making sure we understand this is the Creator, this is the rightful one who is making the judgment. And the idea very simply is that he is God manifesting power. He is revealing himself. This is God Almighty coming from heaven. And so John is making this clear that God is coming as judge in a just judgment at a time that he's not coming with humility. He's not coming with, um, you know, as a helpless babe. He is coming as a powerful person. He is coming with dictatorial plans and taking over and going to basically um, you know, take charge of everything rather than let things happen around him that he's controlling but in a very subtle fashion. This is a very proactive, uh, uh, proactive uh, conduct by Jesus Christ and just letting the, you know, stopping the evil, things like that. He brings an army with him. And what we understand is that army that's talked about in two different passages, the army can include the angels. And he talks about coming in Thessalonians, coming with his, his uh, army of angels that are flaming, fiery angels in judgment. So this is probably that reference, is that part of his accompaniment are his angels, which, <coughs> which would be very, um, very powerful to see. All of a sudden coming out of heaven is this character and then followed by these flaming angels. And then as well it talks about there's an army. If you back up a couple chapters, there's an army that is called chosen, the faithful, uh, those who are called. <coughs> these are terms that are referred to as for believers. So the company that Christ comes is not only with angels, but apparently those of us in heaven with him that we're returning from heaven as he comes in this judgment. And uh, what's interesting, he, he talks about this great army coming, but there's no indication in this passage that we, are, we have weapons. There's no indication that we use weapons. <coughs> when he comes back, excuse me, when he comes back at this time, he's going to exercise his judgment. He's going to take on the world's armies, but he doesn't need us. He has this vast host, but he doesn't need us in order to handle those enemies, which is an interesting concept to, uh, again, highlight his power. He, the only weapon that is stated in the text is what comes out of his mouth, and that is his mouth, his tongue as a sword, and it's mentioned several times in Scripture, but it's obvious that what he's doing is through his verbal communication, he exercises great power, immediate power. And that takes us right away back to Genesis because what does he do in Genesis with that shows the power of his word? He spake and things came into being. So again, this whole passage is highlighting power, authority, uh, majesty. It's all about the greatness of Jesus Christ at his return. Um, the passage tells us that he's going to defeat his enemies. We're going to get a little bit more information as we go through here. He displays his power by a swift and sudden uh, defeat of his enemies which is going to be a, a, a total defeat of him. And that includes, and it's mentioned, the enemies that he takes on are Antichrist, the false prophets, all the kings of the earth, all their armies, and all the hordes of Satan. So all those characters who from Revelation 12 on, well actually, yeah, from about 12 on, those characters that have been highlighted as nobody can stand against him, who can stand against the beast, they have this power that is unrestrained, um, 
And it's been through the book of Revelation, that whole concept of power, power, power of the evil and how it seems victorious. All of a sudden we come to Revelation 19 and they're all defeated. Not just one of them at a time, but all in total together. He takes them on with an army, with angels, but he does all the work. He speaks and they're, they're taken care of. And again, majesty, power, Jesus Christ and all his greatness. This isn't the first time that's talked about how he comes back and when he comes it's going to be totally different. Remember the vision, the vision given in Daniel chapter 2 where he has that big, be, that big statue, the head of gold, and then the different elements. And you have Babylon, Greece, Medo-Persia, the Roman Empire, and then the toes being that blending reference to the ancient or the renewed Roman Empire. And what comes out of heaven all of a sudden? This fiery rock that comes out of heaven. And what does it do to all these great empires? It just, it just destroys them. It annihilates them. And so all the way from the book of Daniel, we've been hearing about that idea that when the kingdom of God comes and when the Messiah brings it, it is going to totally obliterate all these great powers, all these great societies, all these great kings. None of them in history or at the time when he comes are going to be able to stand against him. This is the Christ that we are worshiping today who is this majesty. By the way, it's a totally different presentation of Christ than what we think about at Christmas time. At Christmas time we think about Jesus as a babe, humility, and you know, um, weakness. And here we have this whole different picture. And so many people still keep the concept that Jesus is this um, weak kind of uh, passive character. That's not the Christ who's coming back. He is anything but passive. He is very active and he is coming not to extend grace, but to, and I say that tongue in cheek, he's not extending grace and, and more time. He's coming with one major purpose, judgment. And so he's coming with judgment and establishing his rule. Now, it's by grace that we get into it, into his kingdom. But he's coming with great authority, and so he talks about him as when he comes that he's going to start ruling with a rod of iron. Uh, talks about him taking over. And again, that rod of iron idea, we're going to get into it next week when we do more kingdom concepts. But that rod of iron is he's going to have absolute control. That's a phrase that is ancient Near Eastern phrase. It has the idea that he is in charge. He is in control. Does that mean that everybody does exactly what he says all the time? And there's perfect obedience when he's ruling with a rod of iron. No, that's not true. That doesn't, that not everybody obeys. We'll talk about that, that in the kingdom there will be some people who will be disciplined or chastened because they choose to try to oppose Christ. However, um, it's not like it is today. When they oppose Christ, there's going to be quick judgment and it's going to be meted out fast. The other thing is it says that he tramples out the winepress of God's wrath. This is a, this is a concept that from the Jewish ancient literatures it's that idea of that, that you have that wine press and you're just, you're making everything. You're just taking that product of the vine and you're crushing it. You're just making it into a liquid. In that same sense, this is the idea that he is going to totally obliterate, going to totally wipe out. He's going to crush any opposition, any wickedness. You and I wish he would do that now. Okay? But he, he's in his patience, still giving time. The Lord is not willing that... And he should perish, so he's giving time. That's why he has patience at this moment. And so then he talks about the names which we mentioned already, the word of the Lord, but he gives a couple others. He's called the King of Kings, Lord of Lords, 
We understand what that means right away. That it's the majesty. It's a unique phrase about the almighty potentate. He's the supreme ruler. We understand that that's what he's getting at in that sense. That he's above all the leaders. That he alone has the right to rule the earth. Okay, and he's not doing it by, by deception. He's not doing it by deceit. But he's doing it by rightful inheritance. Rightful claim. He's not a usurper. And so as we made the comment, let me just draw several different contrasts when you talk about, especially this Christmas season, the arrival of Christ and you know, his second coming. It's going to be totally different. We, uh, we had some people who, who, when we do the presentation, we talk in the presentation of Jesus Christ that there's been over the years some people get upset that we talk about his death, his burial, his coming again. And they say, well, you ruined the concept of Christmas by emphasizing his power, his majesty, and you kind of ruined the idea that we have this, this picture that Jesus is this sweet, snuggly little baby. And the reality is the sweet, snuggly little baby is not the one who's coming back. He is the one, we're going to have to deal with Jesus, who is this majestic, powerful uh, individual, that when he comes back, when people see any glimpse of Jesus post-resurrection in heaven, when anybody in scriptures ever saw Jesus in his glory, what was their natural reaction? It wasn't, hey, I'm going to grab this cuddly little person. It was... You know, they, they, the people were, were, they would fall, they would faint, they would just be overcome by his, his power, his purity. And so that's the Christ that's coming. Let, let's see if we can just make some, some comparisons real quick. When he came the first time, quietly, generally unnoticed, correct? Not, not said. When he comes the second time, what do we know? Okay, everybody's going to see him. Everybody's going to see him. When he came the first time, he came to save the lost, when he comes the second time, he's going to come to judge the lost. Absolutely. Okay, that's going to be a, a major, major activity. His first time, he came as a very humble servant. His second coming, how do you want to describe it? King of king, Lord of lords, he's the ruling sovereign. Okay, this isn't servant concept. This is now sovereign concept, that he's taking charge. He rides a donkey into Jerusalem, a beast of humility, when he comes the second time, okay, there he's coming into Jerusalem on this white horse. He's coming with power and majesty. When, he, uh, when he's described the first time, that his eyes, he, he cries multiple times. He's mourning multiple times. When he comes the second time, his eyes are described as piercing fire, authority, anger, intensity, Totally different presentation of Christ in his rightful rule. Both of these are proper at their moment. He was judged by the wicked rulers. They judged him. What's uh, the flip side now, the second time? He judges them, yeah. He judges the wicked rulers this time when he comes back. When we talk about his first coming, he was crowned with a crown of thorns. The second time, multiple crowns, okay? He's wearing multiple crowns himself that are rightfully placed on him. And there's no indication here that somebody placed the crowns upon his head. They're there by right, okay? Who could, who above him could crown him king of kings? Okay, the idea is that he is, he is inherited. He allowed his blood to be shed, the first coming. The second coming, he's going to shed the blood of others, those who resist him, those who oppose him. His first coming, he came alone. He was deserted by everybody. His second coming, 
He's got the armies of heaven. Do you remember, do you remember how Matthew talks about, and we, that song came out, he could have called his 10,000 10, angels? Okay, this time when he comes back, he's going to have all the angels at, at his disposal. He had them at the disposal. He's going to have them in his company. And he's gonna, they're going to be actively rolling in an active role. He did not defend himself. He stood as a lamb, quiet before the slaughter. This time, when he comes back, he's going to make war. He's going to wreak vengeance upon his enemies. He ascended from earth to heaven. Obvi that one's an obvious. This time, he's going to descend from heaven down to earth. Okay, and so the comparison of the comings, you know, the emphasis on the first one, he's rejected. God even rejected him. Uh, in that he said, you know, my God, my God, why have you, re, you know, why have you forsaken me? In the second one, he's going to rule with God. And so he's coming, he's in authority, he's in an acceptable position. And so there's great contrast between his first and second coming, emphasizing that it's going to be totally different. Um, why does he return? By the way, some of your notes might be a little bit off kilter. I'm gonna, I've changed some things up yesterday as I was finishing this um, that I didn't realize that I had changed your notes, the, um, the ones from what I had printed. Why does he return at this time? Now, I'm adding a couple different lines here as I was going over it. Um, I, you have one, two, three, four, something like that. I have six. Okay, so now we've got a 1A, 1B. He comes to, that we're told in scriptures, he comes for this reason. Okay, he comes to stop mankind from destroying himself. Do you remember in Matthew it says that except those doors, days were shortened, that nobody should live. And so at the point of the tribulation where it's at, the world is on the brink of total absolute self-destruction. Jesus comes at that moment to save mankind from destroying himself. So if he didn't come back, mankind could annihilate himself. And not only annihilate himself, but also all of God's creation. So it gets that bad. Jesus comes to rescue what people are there as well as what his creation is. He also comes to save the Jews, the remnant Jews from being annihilated. Now we find that in a couple of different scriptures. That when he comes back, the Jewish people will flock to him. One third of those who are left, uh, we'll be talking a little bit further. But they'll come and they will flee to him and they will come and be converted to him according to Zechariah 14. So what that working... During March, we're going to set aside one whole Sunday in March with our missions month where we're going to talk about Jewish outreach and Jewish ministries. And we'll hear about that. And though that is important at this point, and, and as we need to be involved with different ethnic, uh, death, different ethnic outreaches at times, the Jews as a whole will not respond to Christ until they see him. And one-third of those who are left will then be the remnant who will get saved and flee to him, especially when he comes down to the Mount of Olives. He splits the, the, uh, the valley there, and there's going to be a new valley from Jerusalem to where he is, and they will flee through that valley, a third of them, to Jesus Christ, and they will say, the Lord is my God. And that's when they'll be converted to Jesus Christ as their Messiah, those who are left. And so he, he comes back for that purpose. One of the reasons is to salvage, stop mankind from destroying himself and creation. One is to rescue the Jews. And then we go to those broader sense comments that he does this to fulfill the many prophecies. There's multiple prophecies talking about him coming back and rescuing. And so we have this given from Old Testament, New Testament, where Jesus talks about, I'm coming again, I'm coming again, I'm coming again. And so the angels, when he ascended to heaven, the same Jesus will come in like manner. Physically, you'll see him. 
descending from heaven. And so Jesus Christ will come as well to fulfill the prophecies. He's going to come for another reason, okay? Two in your notes. He comes for this reason, that is to judge the nations for unbelief. He's prophesied, he's dictated, he's said that he's going to come back and there's going to be judgment. And uh, in John 5, it talks about he is the one that's given authority to judge people. Well, he's going to exercise that judgment that God has given him as the Son of Man, a term that is used from the Old Testament. Where you read it, it's the most popular term Jesus used in reference to himself. It comes out of the book of Daniel. It's that idea the Son of Man is the one who has the right to judge. And so he's, uh, he's the one who is the ruler of mankind, a man, but the most exalted man. He's going to come and exercise authority to judge individuals. And so when he does that, he's gonna, it's going to happen right after his second coming, as we'll see in just a few minutes, some of the sequence of events that take place. Number three in your notes, he comes to remove Satan from planet Earth to stop all that evil that has been running rampant. And so we read about it, or uh, we'll read about it, I should say, in a little bit, that he lays hold of the dragon. He has an angel do this. Lay hold of the dragon, the serpent, the devil, Satan, and binds him that he should deceive the nations no more. And so Satan will finally be bound. He's been defeated, theoretically, but practically it will be exercised here when Jesus Christ comes back. Satan's rule and reign will be stopped. And then we have number four. He's coming to establish his universal kingdom. And that is a real, eternal, physical kingdom that he will establish here on planet Earth with Jerusalem as the capital. And so there's multiple passages again that talk about him coming as king. In fact, our, our um, Christmas passage that we'll even, I think we're reading it this morning in the morning service, I'll call right, if I recall right. And it talks about the wonderful the counselor, you know, the prince of peace, that he is coming. And it says of the increase of his king, of his government, the word literally has the expansion. There's no limit. It'll be worldwide that his government will be uh, without end, without boundaries here on planet earth. And so this kingdom concept is very, very, very important. It's something that he has talked about in the Old Testament he's going to bring about and fulfill that Jesus Christ will actually rule on planet earth one day. That's his second coming. All involved with all of those things. When he comes, the question is where does he come to? If the whole world is seeing it, does he come to America? Does he come to Washington, D.C.? Does he come to New York City? The scriptures tells us exactly where he touches down. In Zechariah, it talks about that his feet will stand upon the Mount of Olives and that that is the place where he will actually touch down when he descends from heaven. And it makes sense because that's, it's happening at Armageddon. It's happening where everything's gathered in the Middle East at that moment. But he's going to come. The world will see it. But he descends and he goes back to the very place that he ascended from. He's going to be coming down, and that will be right outside Jerusalem, and then there will be the great earthquake that splits the valley, and as a result, the Jews can flee to him as they flee, to, flee from the enemies who are attacking them during this battle of Armageddon there at Jerusalem. What we also know is this, is there's multiple things, and we alluded to them already. Let's put them all together. Some of the sequence of events that happen as he is coming back, and then right after he comes back. Okay, the armies of the world are gathered to oppose the Jews. Antichrist is leading them. And when they're there at Armageddon trying to annihilate the Jews for good and forever, then they see Jesus Christ descending. They make war against him. Instead of attacking the Jewish people, they're going to turn their weaponry upon Jesus Christ descending from heaven, which 
to me is an absolutely amazing thing is why do people think that they can destroy this heavenly being who looks so majestic, so powerful, with an army of flaming angels, with a vast host of, not that we're intimidating, but just the numbers would be, how do they think in their mind they can destroy him? What in the world would possess those people to think that they can wipe Jesus out coming from heaven? That to me is absolutely mind-boggling. But I'm, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. I have my faith in Jesus Christ. I want Jesus Christ to descend and to establish his kingdom. You know, and I wish he would do that now and uh, he would exercise authority. But his plan is, and it's like, why do people do it? It shows you what about people at that time. The deceit, that's, that's just absolutely, the deceivableness, the, the arrogance, the... Um, the evil that they will, they will know. I mean, up to this point, remember, they, have, they, they, they know that the judgments have been coming from God. Do you remember we've read about in Revelation 6, Revelation chapter 9, as judgment comes, they blaspheme God for the judgments that are happening. So it's that, it's that concept is, I don't believe in God, but I know this is God's working. This doesn't make sense, but that's the mindset of this time period. It just boggles my mind, but... It gives us an insight into how evil has so corrupted and will so corrupt at that point. The, the situations, the Valley of Decision or Megiddo, the uh, sixth vial, if you remember when we talked about it, it's when the angels go out and they dry up the water and they deceive the nations. They bring them together for the initial purpose of attacking Jerusalem, wiping out the Jews, all of this gathering of all the armies. It'll happen right in, you coincide with the destruction of, of the great city of Babylon. They're coming to destroy the, uh, the ancient remains of Jerusalem, and God intervenes to rescue the Jews. And then you have that seventh vial that's poured out. That includes the great earthquake that's talked about, the hailstones of 90 to 100 pounds. All this is happening with, within moments of the descent of Jesus Christ. The fall of Babylon takes place, Jerusalem's divided in three parts, and Jesus Christ descends. So there's going to be all this catastrophe happening, and then Jesus comes down. It's very apparent that this is all a judgment of God, and then here comes God in the flesh. It's an amazing situation that happens, and then Jesus will exercise his conquering that it's interesting. We read the passage. Even before the battle starts, he calls the birds in to feed. Now, you're calling the birds in to feed because you're saying there's going to be great devastation. There's going to be opportunity for the birds, and if you notice the last verse in Revelation 19, <coughs> that they're going to fill themselves full. And so they, they, he calls the birds. He's totally confident of his victory. They come before the battle, and they feast to their fill. And then it indicates that all types of people, no matter who they are, no matter what their position, if they oppose Christ, they're going to fall at this moment. Nobody is going to be able to resist. There will be no underground movement that will, that will be able to resist Christ in the days ahead. So we're going to have this devastation of all the world's modern armies. That's going to be a complete devastation of their leadership, of their personnel, and uh, there, there won't be ability to take care of the bodies. That's why the birds come, because there's nobody left to bury the mass amount of people. It's going to be a victory that is going to result in an absolute slaughter, an absolute total domination and victory over every single one of those who oppose him. And so there's, there's no, Jesus isn't, isn't coming back to say, I'm going, to, I'm going to force you into a point that you make peace with me. 
and you keep some of your rights and then I'll, you know, we'll work at a compromise or a treaty deal. There's nothing like that in his mind. When he comes back, if they're opposing him, they will be destroyed. And so his, his conquest is going to be absolute total. And remember what it's called for during this time period. Now, you might be sitting there and saying, this sounds very harsh, but remember now, for the last several years, saints in heaven, angels in heaven are saying, how long, O Lord, how long? The wickedness is getting so great, so, so tremendous, and that even creation is groaning, according to Romans chapter 8, that there's, they're groaning with almost total destruction. And so when he comes, this is going to be, this is going to be it. There's going to be no room for a peaceful solution. You oppose me, this is damnation. And so it's a total different presentation of Christ. The uh, ringleaders we talked about, that they're all taken out, and as well, they, <clears throat> they're punished. And, they, and remember, these have been powerful creatures and beings. Antichrist, the false prophet, they have exercised great dominion over people. They have been um, the total authority unto themselves, not now. They are, they are manhandled by Christ, cast in lake of fire, and there are armies that have followed them. There's going to be a total destruction of them. This is not the norm of what we want to present or what we think of when Christ comes back. When we think Christ comes back, we want to think of the glamorous, the happy pictures. We want to see the uh, return of Christ. We think of you know, the joy of everybody flitting and floating around in heaven. When he comes back, He's coming back with vengeance, with a rage. He is exercising authority. But all of his, his quote-unquote vengeance, his rage, is totally justified. He is in the right. He is exercising that which he has patiently withheld for generations, especially in this last time period. So when Christ comes back, we're going to see the Christ coming back in his total pure holiness and powerfulness. And he's going to exercise it. And this is when he takes care of Satan. <coughs> when he has him captured and cast into the bottomless pit. The defeat is total. The defeat is swift. What we mean by that is that when he is coming back, he's not going to have a long protracted war. This isn't where it's going to be going back and forth and you know, all of a sudden the enemy gets a little bit ahead and then back and forth in this campaign. It's not going to happen at all like that. When he comes back, it's going to be spoken, spoken judgment, and it's going to take place. It's going to be immediate, total annihilation of the enemies. Again, we're talking about his authority, his majesty, his righteousness, his justice in all of this. The other thought that comes to me is that, that Satan is going to be removed completely. That is, he's going to be cast into the bottomless pit by one of the angels, and the abyss or the abusa in scriptures is used multiple times. It's the place that we understand is a prison right now for some of the demons. And so he's removed so he can no longer deceive nations. Apparently, it's not stated, but I'm going to make the apparently, his hordes are, are uh, removed as well. Those who would be his accomplices, they're not, it's not specifically stated, but they're not going to be able to deceive. In that kingdom, there's, there's not going to be activities like there is now by satanic uh, individuals, satanic hordes that follow Satan himself. And so there's going to be this reprieve from mankind that for the first time in human history since the Garden of Eden, there's not going to be temptation by the spirit world. They are going to be removed for that period of time that he has set. And that we know that period of time, according to Revelation chapter 20, 
and we read down in the first few verses of Revelation 20, it's going to be for a thousand years that Satan and his hordes are cast away and removed so that they cannot tempt people. So you have all of this taking place. This is then, after he's removed them, this is when he sets up his kingdom. This is when he establishes his authority. So you take all that passage and put it together, and you say, okay, what is highlighted out of this text besides his greatness, his majesty? Let's highlight just a few thoughts. And it would be this way. He's going to return one day. There's no doubt about it. The text wants us to understand he's coming back. He's coming back. Now, you and I look for his coming to the clouds, but there's, you know, and that's going to happen before the tribulation. But he is returning. If it were not so, I would have told you. We also know this, that his words, his person is being powerful and authoritative. The author wants us to understand that the Christ that we are serving, he is dominant. He is dictator. He is absolute sovereign. And he will exercise his absolute sovereignty at one time. Right now, there's still a lot of, a lot of allowance for things to happen. One time in the future, he's going to exercise control and going to say, nope, I'm not going to allow certain things to happen anymore. My patience has been exhausted. I'm coming back. Even though Satan, evil, is real and it's powerful, Jesus will have the final victory. We do not have to say, when is it going to stop? Is there any hope? The reality is Jesus is the victor. He is going to win. We are on the winning side with Jesus Christ. Something else is that's important. Though the unrighteous are in the majority, and at times in the, they exercise authority over us. I mean, we live in a day that just boggles me at times. How evil is called good and good is called evil. It's amazing. It's amazing how things are becoming so perverted, so twisted. And you and I keep on saying, you know, how can it get any worse? And it's going to get worse. But the fact is, it will be reversed in time. Jesus Christ will establish righteousness when he establishes kingdom. But it's not something we can do. It has to be done by Jesus Christ. He'll eventually come to take his place as rightful ruler of all creation and all creatures. He's going to exercise it. You and I have the choice right now to let him be the ruler, the, the dominator of our lives right now, which we have to ask ourselves, do we let that happen? We aren't, we aren't seeing a Christ who will one day become this. That's not the point of the text. That one day he will become the rightful ruler. All this passage is telling us is that one day he will exercise his right. He is already the rightful ruler. He is already sovereign. He is already holy. He is already upset by wickedness. He's patiently waiting to exercise these things, but, but he who is our Savior is all of this already. He is powerful. He is uh, aware of everything. He can do things by just the word that he speaks. And so this isn't Jesus in the future. This is just Jesus acting out who he is in the future. He is already this and should be that in our lives already. The, um, there, there's a passage that, that just strikes me um, that sometimes we don't see it in its context. Go back to Psalm chapter 2. It's one of those messianic psalms but I was thinking in this Psalms, as we just talked about his greatness, his royalty, his majesty, read Psalm 2 in light of this, okay? In Psalm chapter 2, he's talking in this, in this section of scriptures about Jesus and the Son of Man. And there's a blend. We, some of this comes up and it's used about his uh, first coming. But the bulk of it is in, in context, you can read it's his second coming. Look at Psalm 2. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? 
the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords their rule over us he that sits in the heavens shall laugh the Lord shall have them in derision then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion I will declare the decree the Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I will give you the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Be wise now, therefore, O you kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Do you understand what he's talking about? This is a picture of Christ when he comes and establishes his kingdom. Then he concludes with this thought, kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish from the way. What's it mean to kiss the son? Bow down. Do you remember in ancient times, how would you approach majesty? Yeah, you'd come kiss the ring. What's it a symbol of? Yeah, your humility, your acceptance of their authority. You know, your, your worship of that deity or that, that ruler. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their... Okay, do you understand where the psalmist is coming from? This psalm is talking about giving the Jews a, a concept. He's coming back this way. And people can, can you know, hold him in derision and they can, laugh, they can laugh at him. He's going to hold them in derision. He will be the victor. He will be in charge. He will be the authority. And so that whole idea. Then he establishes his kingdom. His millennial kingdom is going to be lasting for a thousand years. And we start reading about that in Revelation chapter 20. There's a lot of details about this millennial kingdom. There's a lot of different ideas that come out about it. There are some who would say it's a spiritual kingdom that only happens in the hearts and that it's present right now, that Jesus, and this is all he's going to do. There are some who are going to say that it's a spiritual kingdom like heaven, a spiritual place that only the saved go to. That's the kingdom of God. There are some who will say it's a physical kingdom that will come to earth one day, and this is a theological viewpoint of some, that we need to convert everybody to Christianity so as to bring in the kingdom. This was historically the, the theology in church history, especially during what ages? Okay, Reformation, even go a little bit before that. What spawned, what major historical conflicts were spawned by this thinking? It's still, it, it, it has ramifications today between the Eastern and Western world. Go back in the 1,000, you know, 1,700, 900, 1,000, 1,100. The Western world went into Jerusalem in carrying out what kind of battles were they called? The Holy War, the Holy Crusades. That idea was make converts by the sword. And then if we could bring in, if we could eventually get everybody converted, and so the, the church in history, the church that became corrupt, they were trying to force everybody to become Christians by forced baptisms, forced, um, you know, destruction, and, uh, you know, you either, you either convert to our form of religion or you die. Or even if you convert, you could die as well. But that came from a theological viewpoint that said, we bring in the kingdom by making everybody Christian. Today, it has that, a different little bit of twist to it, is once we get the world good enough, 
then Jesus will come and take over the world once we have got it in place. That goes totally contrary to this story that's given in the book of Revelation, but there's that concept. There are some who would say it's a physical kingdom which he will rule universally, that is, cannot be brought about but by anybody else but by Jesus Christ. My conclusion is this, that a simple, literal interpretation of the Bible leads me to conclude there is a real, future, physical kingdom run by Jesus Christ on this earth that he inaugurates, not us. That he will bring about. It'll be a wonderful kingdom. It'll be peace and prosperity, but he initiates it. He inaugurates it, not us. And so what happens is he will rule and reign. And we get a lot of little bit details about that in the book of Revelation that tell us about how it comes. Now, the book of Revelation isn't the only book that talks about this kingdom. This kingdom comes all the way through scriptures. There is talk about it. And because of there's so much there, we're going to pause, pause right here, get ready for worship. But next week we're going to pick up and we're going to talk about what is this kingdom like? What will we be doing in that kingdom? How is it in comparison to heaven? And what happens if somebody disobeys? And who could possibly disobey if everybody's saved? We'll talk about those things next week. Thanks for listening.